Sydney Environment Institute in partnership with Sydney Ideas presents Renewable Reinvention, Green Global Shift with speakers John Matthews, Emma Hurd and Tony Vasallo and Chair Christopher Wright. Good evening. Welcome. Welcome to the University of Sydney and thank you for coming to tonight's special Sydney Ideas public lecture on Renewable Reinvention, Global Green Shift. My name is Christopher Wright and I'm a Professor of Organisational Studies uh, at the University of Sydney Business School and a key researcher at the Sydney Environment Institute. Before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built as we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So tonight we're here to talk about energy and the possibilities of a global and Australian renewable reinvention of energy. Uh, as several of our speakers tonight uh, will outline, global energy markets are in a process of rapid change and transformation. Over the last decade, renewable energy technologies like solar and wind have become dramatically cheaper uh, and now challenge the economics of traditional fossil fuel energy systems. Added to this, catastrophic implications of human-induced climate disruption are forcing governments, or some governments, uh, to seriously embrace decarbonisation uh, as demonstrated uh, to some extent in the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. You'll note the caveats given recent political developments. Um, however, uh, just to emphasise that, the US government's recent rejection of clean energy legislation, proposed expansion of coal, oil and gas, uh, and uh, announcement that they would be uh, retreating from the Paris Climate Agreement, highlight how the old fossil fuel order is not giving up without a fight. Uh, and so we have these countervailing trends evident in current political battles over energy and climate, and they are painfully evident in Australia as we speak. So tonight we bring together three expert speakers on the potential for renewable reinvention and a global green shift. What are the opportunities and challenges Australia and the world face in the coming decade as we try to kick our fossil fuel addiction and embrace a cleaner, more sustainable energy future? So let me introduce our three speakers. Um, our first speaker, Professor John Matthews, is a leading scholar of the greening of capitalism with a specific focus on China and East Asia. Uh, this interest in the greening of business stems from a decade or more of scholarship focused on the competitive dynamics of international business, the evolution of technologies and their strategic management, and the rise of new high technology industries. His work now focuses on the emergence of the green economy and the transition to renewable energies. He's published extensively on this topic in major international journals, including Nature, uh, and is the author of several books on the topic, including The Greening of Capitalism with Stanford University Press and his most recent book, Global Green Shift, published by Anthem Press. Our second speaker is Professor Tony Vasallo from the University of Sydney, who holds the Delta Electricity Chair in Sustainable Energy Development in the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology. Tony is a passionate advocate of the need to transition to low-carbon energy sources and in particular, the development of battery energy, energy storage to facilitate high levels of renewable generation. He teaches sustainability and researches energy storage here at the University of Sydney and is a past president of the Australian Institute of Energy and also a director of the Centre for Sustainable Energy Development in the School of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering. Our third and final speaker is Emma Hurd. Uh, Chief Executive Officer at the Advesta Group on Climate Change. Prior to her role at IGCC, Emma spent 15 years at Westback Banking Corporation where she had leading roles uh, across carbon finance and emissions trading, ESG risk assessment, public policy and sustainable strategy development. Emma has participated in a number of key public forums, government and industry bodies related to climate change and the environment 
and is a non-executive director of the Carbon Market Institute and a member of the Cornerstone Capital Global Advisory Council. As you may suspect, given her current role, she's in the thick of the current Australian debate about energy and climate, and you may have seen her in a recent ABC TV Q&A panel on this very topic. Okay, so the running order for tonight is that each of our three guests will provide a short presentation of around 12 minutes or so, after which we'll have a panel discussion uh, and open, open it up to Q&A, which I'll facilitate. Uh, so, without further ado, please join me in welcoming our first speaker, Professor John Matthews. Thank you very much uh, to Chris and uh, to the uh, Environment Institute. It's a great pleasure uh, to be here and to see so many people coming out uh, tonight for this discussion. Now, it's fortunate that the uh, topic for tonight is phrased as a question. Is there a global green shift? And what I'm going to do is uh, provide an argument that would respond to that question in the affirmative. I'm going to argue that there is indeed a global green shift underway. But my argument will not be uh, what you might call a conventional argument, uh, responding to the great moral crisis created by global warming and carbon emissions, ocean acidification, loss of biodiversity, all of these terrible things that have uh, come to public notice in recent years. Instead, my argument is going to be much simpler, more straightforward. It's going to start with China. And my argument is that China is industrializing and is doing so at a scale so great unprecedented in economic history, that if China were to pursue a conventional fossil fuel pathway, then it would run into intractable limits. Not only the limits that are well known, like the terrible pollution associated with burning of fossil fuels, and the uh, global uh, the limits to growth with physical limits to oil and coal and gas and all the other resources, but particularly the geopolitical limits that uh, China would face, the civil wars, the terrorism that it would face if it were to pursue a conventional fossil fuel pathway. So that, in a nutshell, is the kind of argument I'm going to present, that we are indeed uh, in, in the middle of a global green shift and that China is driving it, and I'll look at the evidence. I'll very move very quickly through a few slides to present the evidence and then uh, pause to ask, well, how do we account for the fact that China is making these strong green choices? So we start with uh, the industrial dynamics evident uh, in the world and the principal uh, feature of these uh, global industrial dynamics is the shift in manufacturing eastwards. So here we see the OECD countries in the blue line with their share of manufacturing value added coming down. And we see the uh, share of manufacturing added in uh, non-OECD countries, for which read China, coming up. And you can see they've almost crossed over. And indeed, by the current year 2017, they have indeed crossed over. What does that mean? It means in terms of manufacturing, we are living in a Sinocentric world. Now, what does that mean for China? It means that China is building, the, is becoming the workshop of the world. It's building the world's largest manufacturing system. And in order to power that system, it's having to create the world's largest energy system. And just like all other previous industrializing powers, China has built its energy system on coal and oil and gas, but largely on coal for the electric power system. And here you see the enormous quantities of coal that China has been burning, just like every other prior industrial power before it. So you see the, uh, the, the coal uh, burning increasing uh, with a very strong inflection point at the year 2001, which was of course when China joined the World Trade Organization and in effect told the world that it was open for business, that investments would be safe in China, 
and that its exports started to rise rapidly. You can also see the, the coal being capped because the intervention of the Chinese government in the economy saying, we've burned enough coal, we can't really stand any more of this pollution and we have to put a stop to it. By contrast to that black economy that the world is so familiar with in the case of China, there is a green economy underway in China which is equally dramatic. And this, here we see this in terms of the proportion of renewable sources uh, being utilised by China in generating its electric power. And over the past decade, you can see there has been a huge shift in favour of uh, WWS sources, water, wind and sun, so much so that there's a 15 to 20% uh, shift just in the past decade towards a green source of power. So China shows us the two faces of an energy system, indeed the largest energy system in the world. And uh, when we look at it uh, compared with other countries, we see that China is already the superpower of renewables. It's already the Saudi Arabia, if you like, of uh, renewable power. Here we see China's investment in renewable, its capacity in renewable power, half a trillion watts, half a terawatt, uh, far larger than uh, the United States or Germany or Japan. So that raises the question, why is China doing this? What lies behind these uh, quite remarkable energy choices on the part of China? Here's a comparison uh, with the European Union, which again shows how the European Union to the right of the chart was building up its renewable capacities but as China overtook uh, those uh, European capacity investments, uh, so the European Union has been pulling back. Now China's investments two and a half times the level of the European Union. So this raises very, very strong questions. Why is China doing this? And China is doing it not just in terms of energy, but in terms of resources. Its approach to resources is based not just on the linear economy, optimising the flow of resources through the economy in a linear fashion, but it's developing a new model of the economy called the, re, uh, the circular economy, which I could spend just as uh, much time on, but uh, time is limited. So that's an extremely quick uh, run-through of the evidence that China is moving in a decisive way towards renewable power. The question is, why is it doing so? Here we see what would happen if China were to pursue a fossil fuel pathway, and in fact the gap between production and uh, consumption, or domestic production and consumption, would grow larger and larger. There you see the case for China, and above it the case for India, which is following a similar kind of pathway. As that gap increases, or would increase, uh, so China's dependence on imports would grow. And the more it's dependent on imports, the more it's dependent on uh, unstable parts of the world. In other words, these become geopolitical limits. So take the case of uh, African countries like Nigeria or the South Sudan. The South Sudan becomes a supplier of oil to China. China becomes its largest customer. And no sooner does that happen than what happens? Uh, a civil war breaks out. Where did the civil war come from? Well, nobody really knows. Certainly the United States is not saying, and uh, we know that uh, the CIA tells no tales, so we don't know whether the CIA was involved or not. But it certainly created problems for China. They become a large customer for the oil, and then they're embroiled in a civil war. That's what I call a geopolitical limit on China's possibility, possibility of following a fossil fuel pathway. So there's another pathway that China doesn't want to go down, and that's the uh, one that was uh, taken in the United States by General Motors. Here's General Motors' great gift to the United States. Uh, they bought up the trolley car companies operating city by city and trashed the trolley cars. So these were the trolley cars running in Los Angeles, a very good public transport system there, until General Motors bought the trolley car company, trashed the trolley cars, and... Uh, forced everybody to buy General Motors cars. Now, it's a very smart move on part of China to avoid those geopolitical limits, and it's reinforced 
by the fact that every renewable device is a product of manufacturing. Think of wind turbines, think of solar cells, think of batteries, think of electric vehicles. All of these are products of manufacturing and as such they enjoy the phenomenon of these falling costs. Now these falling costs are not God-given, uh, they're not uh, a matter of fortune with rising oil prices or falling oil prices. These are the product of the building up of experience in a manufacturing process. So there we see falling costs for photovoltaics on the top and falling costs for lithium-ion batteries on the bottom. China is benefiting from these falling costs. Moreover, it contributes to the falling costs because as the costs fall, the market expands. And as the market expands, the efficiencies improve. And as the efficiencies improve, the costs come down. That's called circular and cumulative causation. And it's the fundamental reason why China is benefiting from these falling costs associated with the manufacturing of renewable power. That means that uh, around the world, opportunities are created for other countries. Here we see opportunities in Africa for a country like Egypt. And I like this picture because it shows you the world's oldest technology, the pyramids, and the world's newest technology, solar photovoltaics. And they're both there in the country. Egypt is becoming a player in renewable power because the costs have come down as China drives the process. China then expanding its uh, infrastructure around the world and uh, uh, through the global energy interconnection. Then we see the, uh, the, uh, the, the green shift moving through energy, uh, electric power production, transport, industry, and ultimately in agriculture. So here we see a picture of growing clean and green tomatoes uh, using solar power, solar energy, which desalinates seawater, and that clean, fresh water is then pumped through the greenhouse uh, and produces clean, fresh, green tomatoes. That's actually the Sundrop Farms uh, operation in South Australia. Clearly, when it's taken up at scale in China, it will uh, represent an enormous uh, step forward for China. Finance, I could say a lot about that, but we have um, Emma here tonight who will be talking finance. Uh, so there's no shortage of finance uh, for this green shift. Uh, the thing is to find the vehicles that will enable uh, serious financial investors uh, to uh, move in the green direction, and that means looking to climate bonds or green bonds. Uh, and here we see again China greening their financial system uh, and becoming a world leader in the issuance of green bonds. So that's a very rapid run through of why there is indeed a global green shift underway. And uh, the argument was spelt out in this article in Nature in 2014, where the title, Manufacture Renewables to Build Energy Security. So the, see, the argument is not so much that renewables are all about low carbon emissions. Of course they are. It's a very, very convenient side effect of renewables that they lower carbon emissions. But the point is, they enhance energy security. And that's why China is backing them. And that's why China has made a very good choice. We followed that up with the article on the solar, on the circular economy in China, where that's looking down on the Suzhou Industrial District, where they're recirculating all the copper and gold in the electronic circuits. They don't have to depend on imports of copper from Africa. They're re-urban mining them themselves in the city of Suzhou. And that's the Global Green Shift book that is, uh, just came out earlier this year. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, thanks, John, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm not going to use any PowerPoint presentations tonight. I've sort of learnt my lesson over the last year or two, and if I can't fit 100 slides into 12 minutes, then I won't do it. So I'm going to just really speak a bit off the cuff, and I'm going to anchor my, my discussion around... Um, it's a, a global green shift, as John um, has mentioned, but I'm going to anchor it to points of relevance to Australia. 
Um, and I'm using the approach of challenges and opportunities, I think, which was the, you know, the, the sub-theme of the uh, discussion tonight. Um, so firstly, I just want to run through what I see as being um, some of the headline challenges for the global green shift, especially to do with green energy production, renewable energy production. Um, and when I sat down to do this, I actually realised there are a lot. So while I'm hugely optimistic on the growth of renewable energy, green technologies, there are such a spread of challenges um, that really we need to keep our wits about us um, and address these issues, otherwise things are not going to go nearly as smoothly as they can. And we see a lot, we're seeing a lot of this in Australia now at the moment. And to some degree, Australia is actually out there in front of many other countries when it's coming to dealing with the integration of renewable energy into modern, uh, not modern, conventional electricity networks. So the first set of challenges I think that we need to look at are things like um, our electricity markets have been designed uh, using what is largely now becoming an outmoded uh, means of production. We have very large-scale, remote, um, in inverted commas, baseload power stations, and the market systems have been developed um, to address their, their characteristics. And what we're finding now is that as we move away from the conventional, stable, large baseload generators, the market is not able to manage that transition very well. Now, if that transition is not managed well, uh, then we start to see some of the issues that are playing out in the media and in discussions today. And that's largely to do with the variability of the output of renewable energy generators. I mean, we don't need to, we don't need to go through that detail, but what is required is some clear thought as to how markets where, we, where generators can sell their energy into it and consumers can buy their energy from. And those markets are largely becoming historically irrelevant now. And that is a big challenge. We're seeing it in Australia, uh, where the Finkel Review has come out with 50 recommendations as to how to, to manage that transition. Um, and that's really only looking at electricity. And uh, bear in mind, you know, there's a large um, section of renewable energies which are not electricity-based, things like biofuels, um, and they will come also with a set of challenges. Um, also, we need to be a little bit aware that um, despite, I guess, sometimes wanting to, to see the destruction of the conventional utility model because we believe, for you know, one reason or another, that they are not doing... Uh, they're not promoting or doing enough to integrate variable renewables. Destroying that business model, it has to be replaced by something else that works. So the destruction of the huge integrated utility um, is, is happening. It's happening at the moment. It's happened in Germany. It's happening in the USA. It's happening in Australia. These utility models are too slow to change um, and they are suffering. But if we destroy that utility model, we have to have a replacement which is going to work to the benefit of consumers, producers and the system in general. Um, in terms of uh, the need for baseload, I'll just mention that um, briefly. Um, the grid was designed, I mean, the, the baseload concept was it was cheaper and more economic to move the power station from where the load was, which was in the city, to where the fuel was, or fuel is, which is on top of a coal seam, say, in the Hunter Valley, in, if we take New South Wales as an example. It was more economic to do that. So by doing that, you could have a much larger scale power station. You have almost unlimited access to fuel underground. But then you end up with a situation where the power station really needs to keep operating. It had to keep operating continuously because it's become so large, large and mechanised. So it got to the point where you know, when demand was low, at nights, for example, um, the power station needed to create a load so that it didn't close down. And that was the base load. The base load was the point at which the generators wouldn't or shouldn't try and drop below because that would mean inefficient operation or closing down one of the units. So base load was created, was created with smelters, it was created with hot water systems, 
electric off-peak hot water, for example, was a, a creation of the utility to use off-peak electricity, which otherwise would have been uneconomic to produce. Now, we've not really addressed that situation. What we need with a variable generation system, like wind or solar, is the ability to have a flexible dispatch. So it's not that we need um, to be able to shadow the generation all the time. We just need a system that will provide some stability when the output of a variable generator is changing. And we you know, we know the engineering of that extremely well. Wind forecasting is highly accurate. Most wind farms can get um, an hour or two forecast of their output very, very, um, very, uh, very accurately. So forecast of power output um, is not the issue. The issue is being able to integrate those systems into the current grid. Um, one of the things that I'm deeply involved with and I believe is a key to this is the use of energy storage. Um, we've been looking at energy storage here for the last eight or ten years, uh, but really it seems to have been discovered now by our political um, compatriots. Um, however, uh, energy storage, either in the form of hydro or thermal or batteries, um, is a key plank that the system is going to have to incorporate. So the market system has to be able to provide a platform where the, the benefits and the value of using energy storage is actually um, paid for or recognised. At the moment, that's not really the case. Now, there are some changes to the rules which are currently being looked at, and that is to provide some sort of better payment to operators who use storage to maintain or adjust uh, the stability of the grid. Um, the other key point, I think, in terms of grids, um, particularly for a country like Australia, which is an, an island, it has an isolated grid, um, is the need to have a robust transmission network. Um, other countries, Germany for example, are quite able to uh, use their interconnection with the rest of the European electricity grid to manage their excesses or deficits and many other countries can do that. Australia has to be totally reliable on its own network and I think for a large amount of uh, integrated variable renewable generation we need to have a robust transmission backbone so that when for example there is a um, a large amount of excess wind available in South Australia that can be easily dispatched to the rest of the network through an interconnection. Currently those interconnections are often constrained. They were not really designed for this system. So this is another challenge to the operation and the design of the grid. It needs to be changed so that there is a, a robust backbone where energy can move between regions corresponding to different weather patterns and different load and demand patterns as well. Um, one of the issues I think that we do need to be very careful of is as, we, as the, the grid becomes more intelligent, and we've probably heard the, the smart grid term, um, I think it's becoming fairly obvious that there is going to be um, a huge number of energy devices that are going to be connected to a network that will communicate with each other, machine to machine or machine to, to person to platform, where energy can be exchanged or data will be exchanged on um, community generation or community loads or industry needs. And this is all going to happen very quickly, um, most likely very close to real time. So there's a huge communication platform that has to be built up in the uh, the power grid to manage this. Add to that electric vehicles where electric vehicles now become both a load and the ability of a mobile battery to be used either for the vehicle itself to move or for um, attaching to uh, as a stationary storage. That, that networked operation um, is a huge new platform that has to be designed and built and with that comes the challenge of cyber security of maintaining a stable and secure system that is, is not open to um, uh, malicious attack. And already we're seeing around the world a number of power stations um, that have been uh, attacked and there is some concern now that there is a major attack likely to happen in the USA before the end of, the end of 2017. 
um, and people are, are looking at very carefully how to harden up the system for that. Um, the other issue I think with a robust transmission network is uh, for cities like Sydney or you know, the large global mega city, how do you get that amount of renewable energy into the city? You know, there's not that much rooftop space available for photovoltaics. Um, wind generation in cities is extremely difficult to capture. Um, so largely, uh, a lot of that renewable generation needs to be uh, provided outside the city limits. Um, and so there needs to be robust uh, transmission and distribution systems to carry that power into and out of cities. Um, and with that, I guess, comes, uh, comes some other, uh, other challenges. Uh, with electric vehicles used in cities becoming a, a very large additional load um, on uh, the existing network systems. Um, I won't go into discuss things like hydrogen because I mean that is another whole subject on its own but uh, there is a lot of discussion, thought and optimism I think around uh, the use of generating hydrogen from renewable sources. This becomes a nice way of storing excess energy for use as a, uh, either as a fuel or as a chemical source later. And one of the big opportunities and challenges of moving towards a very large fraction or a 100% fraction of renewable energy is that for many times of the year, even if we're at 50% annual production of renewable energy, there will be many days um, and weeks during the year when there'll be more than 100% of renewable energy available simply because the capacity of the renewable systems is going to be large enough to provide an annual uh, target of renewable energy, say 50%, but on an hourly and daily basis that output is going to move up and down. And it's quite clear that the output will reach 100% or more over many hours of the year. So there'll be large fractions of excess electricity uh, which can become a a resource for industry, providing that it can be used and stored properly. <clears throat> and the analysts are saying that it doesn't, you know, even getting up to 30 or 35 percent renewable electricity generation in Australia will start producing excess power for a few days of the year where that power will need to be shed. Now, the, the upside of all this, of course, is that the marginal cost or the marginal price of that energy uh, can drop to zero. And so I think we can look forward to seeing lower and lower electricity prices as the fraction of renewables goes up. But we have to manage excesses and deficits in a, in a sensible way. Um, and they were really the sort of challenges that go through my mind, not in any particular strategic order. The, the, opportunities, the opportunities that I see is that, um, as uh, John has mentioned, this is going to be one of the world's largest growth industries. In fact, it probably already is. Um, so the opportunity there for a country like Australia is to get on board and become part of that industry rather than trying to fight it and to secure and um, trying to uh, keep existing jobs in industries that are always facing or will always face an uphill battle. So I get extremely frustrated and disappointed when I see arguments put up that, well, you know, if we support this type of technology, we're going to lose jobs in another area. Um, I think the, the, clear, uh, the clear direction is support the, the growth of the new industries because this is going to be a, a hugely long transition with lots of opportunities and Australia needs to attract that international investment to be part of that. Uh, another opportunity is that these types of renewable energies um, are very, very suitable for regional and remote areas. And so they can be used to create jobs and opportunities um, outside the big cities. Um, there's clearly a, a challenge and a need uh, for good quality technology-based or other-based jobs in the rural and remote regions. And I think the more we integrate renewables with our electricity system, the bigger the opportunity there is to create those industries out of the cities where there is a real job need as well. So that was sort of my very quick take on the challenges and opportunities. Thank you. Uh, 
good evening. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak today. I'm actually going to speak from quite a different perspective from our previous two speakers, but I think hopefully we'll also reflect a few of the key themes which have emerged. Um, for those of you who uh, might not know who the uh, this looks worrying. <laughs> might not know who the Investor Group on Climate Change is. We are effectively an industry association representing institutional investors. So super funds, asset owners, asset managers, that part of the finance value chain. Uh, and our, across Australia and New Zealand and our members represent about 1.6 trillion in assets under management. So we are definitely the, the, uh, <laughs> the supermodels of the finance industry, we, you know, our members don't get out of bed for less than $100 million, basically. So the, the comments that I'm making are from that perspective, uh, even though obviously I do have a chequered past working in the banking industry. So I want to quickly talk through how investors are thinking about low carbon opportunities. And, and I want to start first with um, a couple of the main drivers in terms of how, what, what's actually changing investor behaviour and how they're thinking about um, key issues. So what's, what's changing investor behaviour? I want to start firstly with the obvious. I want to start with the Paris Agreement, but I want to reframe it not as an environmental uh, policy agreement, but I want to reframe it as a whopping great big market signal because that's precisely how the finance and investment community and the business community has actually seen it. The reason they're looking at it that way is for two reasons. One, because it's not a fixed point in time, five-year top-down agreement, but because it's a process. It's a process with the direction of travel with a continuous mechanism for uh, ratcheting up ambition and for continuous nationally-led policy responses. So it creates a dynamic of continuous change. The second reason that's seen as a market signal is because it's got numbers in it. So it actually has the commitment to limit warming to less than two degrees, which actually implies that you need to get to net zero global emissions by the second half of the century. Numbers mean you can reverse engineer impacts. You can do it in terms of global industry sectors, you can do it at country level, you can do it at company level, you can do it at asset level. And you can actually begin to calculate and work through what that means in terms of the financial implications and where some of those emerging investment opportunities will be. The second point that I want to highlight in terms of one of the main drivers is the very excitingly named uh, Financial Stability Board Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, <laughs> which I shall henceforth refer to as the TCFD. The TCFD was also launched in Paris in 2015 when the Paris Agreement was, uh, was, was, was finalised. It uh, was instigated by the gentleman on your left, Mark Carney, the Governor of the Bank of England, in his capacity as Chair of the Financial Stability Board Committee under the G20. This committee has all of the governors of the reserve banks of the G20, including Australia. The person on the right, Michael Bloomberg, is who was appointed to chair the task force. Uh, it's possible that Bloomberg saw, I don't want to be cynical here, but a commercial opportunity in the establishment of a global new platform for emissions data gathering uh, in terms of the fact that he runs the Bloomberg trading terminals, which is on the trading room floor of every, uh, every financial institution pretty much in the world. The task force itself was intended to set up a disclosure framework. So how do you integrate the impacts of climate change into financial reporting? How do you actually translate the science, the technological change, the market change, and put it into an annual report? How do you actually show shareholders that as a company you are effectively managing your carbon risk? This is what the task force has been attempting to do. The actual members of it include all four big accounting firms, um, uh, Standard & Poor's and Moody's, big insurance companies, big mining companies, BHP for example. Um, basically it's a who's who of mega corporates have been involved in actually putting this voluntary standard um, together. I say voluntary, but it's one of those voluntary things that becomes less voluntary the more everybody else does it, and you're the only company that doesn't, facing a whopping great big shareholder resolution. So what they've done, which is so significant, is, is frame climate change as a financial risk. And they've done it by t defining new terminology, which you're now seeing applied everywhere. And I'm going to give you a very concrete example of where you're seeing it in just a sec. So they've, they've, they've condensed it down to transition risk, which includes regulatory, market and technological disruption, those dimensions of climate change. And they've also pulled out physical risk, which is both the acute and the chronic impacts of actual climate change. 
Um, and, and they've separated them out into different categories because they have different issues and implications. And of course, they've acknowledged liability risk, which is the failure to actually adequately manage transition and physical risk. And let me give you a couple of concrete examples of how we're already seeing this play out. So AGL, who are in the news quite a lot at the moment, have a newly appointed head of transition whose responsibility it is is to define and agree the transition plan for Liddell. Uh, luckily for them, this person was given the job six months ago, so obviously they're very busy at the moment. Um, <laughs> uh, also, I think what's interesting is that AGL spent most of their AGM today, and the chair of the board and the CEO spent most of their time talking about their transition plan for AGL's um, uh, coal-fired power stations, but also how it was capitalising on emerging, emerging opportunities out of the global energy transition, which is their renewables portfolio. So this is, this is kind of how you're beginning to see both the numbers of Paris and the language of the TCFD changing corporate behaviour in the energy sector and where investors are coming in and beginning to use that to push, push for change and better articulation of the financial risks as well. So what are investors themselves actually doing? They're doing, roughly speaking, four things. Divesting, investing, engaging and disclosing. But lucky for you, on a Wednesday night, I'm only going to talk about one, which is the investing side of things. I'm sure many of you in the room would be familiar with the recent divestment campaign, uh, asking your super fund to get its money out of fossil fuels. Divestment also has a broader kind of meaning in terms of getting your money out of high carbon, high risk assets from a straight financial perspective as well. Um, engagement is corporate engagement, so uh, asking the companies you invest in what is their plan for dealing with climate change, how are they uh, responding to the parameters of the TCFD, when will they report against the TCFD. This is a, a major new uh, area of activity and in fact today, roughly, time zone hopping a little bit in Germany, a, um, a new global initiative is being launched which is convened by five investor groups which is targeting the 150 biggest emitting companies in the world over a five-year period and getting them to reduce their emissions and report on the TCFD. And if those 150 companies move, that's over 10% of global emissions uh, are affected. So this is how you're beginning to see Paris plus TCFD plus investor action combining to actually affect business change as well. So the investing side, well, I want to just spend about five minutes talking through how investors are thinking about these changes. And conveniently for me, last week we put out a report which summarises exactly this. Um, so we went and surveyed, uh, surveyed investors, asking them, what are your attitudes towards green investment? What are you actually doing? What asset classes are you investing in? What are the, what are the barriers? What are the challenges? How are you defining green? Um, what markets are you active in? And I'm just going to talk through a few of those uh, results because I think it provides you with an interesting insight into some of the challenges and opportunities of facilitating a global shift, a global green shift uh, uh, in, in terms of decarbonisation but also the energy sector. Uh, so first, where are they investing? So I think as you can see, if uh, possibly up the back, the pale blue is active, the dark blue is considering investment and the orange is totally not interested right now in terms of the results. The top bar where you've got the most active and considering investment is international markets. Australian investors are putting their green capital overseas is the outcome of that chart. Secondly, they're looking at Australia, they're active in Australia because that's where they're active, but there's also a reasonably alarming chunk who are not intending to invest in Australia when you consider the, 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 the strong results in that top bar. The, the, the bottom two are in terms of the split between developed and emerging, very strong um, activity in developed markets, but what we also found was strong consideration of emerging markets, and this is particular in our region for Australian and New Zealand investors, very strong appetite for China. Uh, China, to some extent India, but mostly China because there's a lot of other governance and currency risks associated with investing in India. So green capital is going offshore and it's going into a mixture of developed and developing markets depending on where the opportunities are. Secondly, we looked at what asset classes are you active in? And this is quite a busy chart and it's a little financial techie, so I'm just going to point you towards a couple of interesting components. The, 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 the bars in the middle, um, so fixed income and real estate, were where we saw most capital currently going into green investment. Fixed income is bonds, and that's green bonds. And I'll, I'll come back to some figures. 
Uh, real estate is in green, the greening of the property sector, which is a, a completely interesting dimension of renewable energy investment, particularly in Australia. You've got this burgeoning on-site renewable energy generation in the property sector, which is also contributing to increased renewables penetration in a very new and exciting slash disruptive way. You've also got uh, a sort of smattering of interest in some other areas in terms of green investment, but um, listed equities is also a really interesting area because that's, that's the bulk of the global investment community. That's everybody's super when it's uh, passively invested. It's, 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 it's pretty much all of our, in this room, unless you're actively managing your own super fund, all of our money is, is in some form of listed equities. Interestingly enough, you've got this huge uh, rush of product development in listed equities at the moment, and the way to think about this is that it's not dedicated green investment, it's actually the greening of global investment, which is a different but really interesting trend as well. Uh, and then I just want to pick up on a couple of live examples. We mentioned green bonds before. This came out uh, Thursday, Friday last week. It's the latest global uh, green bond state of the market report. They found that there's, this year there was 895 billion in climate-aligned green bonds, up from 3 billion in 2012. That is a very short period of time to be experiencing such exponential growth. Now, not everyone will agree with the definition of climate-aligned. It does include some uh, emissions efficiency projects for coal in China. So there's obviously going to be some not that's not quite so green that you can call it climate-aligned type investment. But um, the bulk of it is going into China. The dominant currency is renminbi. Uh, you're also seeing a lot of government and municipal bonds being issued as state authorities try and grapple with the effects of decarbonising their own infrastructure as well. Then uh, they also have just set a new objective to get to one trillion by 2020, which is looking eminently achievable. Um, and the reason investors like bonds, green bonds by the way, is because it's a secure, known, familiar form of finance where you can get relatively safe returns uh, through known channels. It's not um, crazy, new, exciting, innovative finance. It's actually just about as bog standard as it gets. And yet you're seeing the greening of the bond industry. It's still small relative to the total bond industry, but the rate of growth is the interesting point here. A couple of very specific examples of how these numbers and these trends that I've talked about intersect and combine to become real-life examples. So the one on the left where you've seen uh, in April this year, Investor uh, issued a green bond for, for uh, property and it was predominantly for um, uh, energy efficiency and on-site renewables in the property sector. Um, so, and this was massively oversubscribed, investors can't wait to get their hands on these sorts of bonds. Um, and it was certified to prove its green credentials by the Climate Bonds Initiative. So this is where you have investor appetite for fixed income and property, the real estate as the asset class, in um, developed economy combining into a product offering that came out this year. And this is just a very typical example of the kinds of things you're seeing. The other example on the right is uh, Unisuper, just a fairly standard uh, Australian super fund. Um, who've developed a, uh, the Global Environmental Opportunities option. So if you're a member of their super fund, you can shift your super into this particular option. It targets international markets. It uses MSCI, uh, the, the, one of the two most standard uh, index providers in the market for listed equities. Uh, and the, the specific um, construction of the index is for green or environmental service offering companies where more than 50% of their revenue comes from environmental services and products. So again, you begin to see how these, these sorts of trends in terms of markets, asset classes and activities combine into real world, real world product offerings. If you're a member of Unisuper or any number of other Australian super funds, a lot of them have these kinds of products and they are mushrooming, would be fair to say. The, both of these very heavily target energy and renewable energy activities or energy efficiency, um, but increasingly you're seeing that, that uh, interconnectedness that's come up in the previous two talks as well in terms of uh, renewable energy in the ag sector or sustainable forestry that also um, generates renewable energy certificates. So you're beginning to see this increasing sort of complexity of low carbon or green aligned type activities which are building off these trends. Of course, barriers. It wouldn't be a report if we didn't identify some barriers. Uh, to no one's surprise, I think I would say that the two top barriers were policy and regulatory uncertainty. And the other interesting one was lack of investable deals. And what they mean by that is big enough, uh, safe enough to get um, a sufficient level of return while only taking a, a, a reasonable level of risk. And these two barriers are intrinsically related in Australia. 
So if you're talking about what's going on, if I was to summarise it in a, in, uh, in, in, a, in a bit of an analogy in terms of these, these, um, these two barriers, is you've got this uh, sort of trickle of capital that's interested in green investment that over the last uh, two years since Paris has become a flood. Regulatory uncertainty in Australia is a dam, and rather than stopping, the water is now going around it and trying to find other ways to invest in low-carbon opportunities because the momentum that's provided by Paris and through other sorts of broader technological or market issues that you're seeing has got its own self-generating momentum. So this is why it's such a problematic situation in Australia and it's having all these perverse effects. Uh, I also just want to touch briefly on adaptation because it's always the poor cousin to the climate change debate when we're talking about risk and opportunity and yet it's the biggest single cost of climate change there is. And it sounds a bit grim to be talking about uh, increasing the resilience of our infrastructure to climate change as an investment opportunity but there is no doubt that there is a huge um, capital vacuum in terms of, any, and this is true everywhere in the world, in terms of really beginning to grapple for developed economies particular with impacts to existing infrastructure and economic value at risk. And to give you a concrete example in Australia, the last national assessment of economic value or infrastructure at risk from climate change was done in 2012. So we don't actually know what the tag, what the cost, what the bill is for climate change in Australia uh, in terms of uh, modern infrastructure costs or impacts at the moment. So this report was just an attempt to try and work out how does the private sector begin to invest in adaptation? How do you even begin to get your head around it? Because risk we can do, but investing in changed or, or new types of infrastructure, very hard, very difficult to do. So to sum up, so I sort of whizzed through a few different things there and I sort of built on some of the themes from the previous um, present, pres presentations but kind of took quite a different tact. So I just want to highlight just how much of a market signal the Paris Agreement has been but also the launch of the TCFD concurrently means that it's being translated into the language of financial markets and that's why you're seeing all these companies, these unusual suspects suddenly becoming climate change warriors because they're facing pressures in their operating environment in their markets from their shareholders as well as from the community and from employees around how they're managing climate change. And they're making economically rational decisions to position themselves for an economic transition, which is decarbonisation. You're also uh, beginning to see that investors are increasingly looking for on opportunities. Transition isn't just moving away from things, it's actually moving to something. Uh, and, and the economic opportunities, particularly in our region and as we heard in China, are manifold uh, in, in terms of the returns that you can get through investing in renewables and the, the fundamental shift that's going on in terms of the cost of technology, the economics of energy themselves, the whole sector is just facing amazing disruption and in disruption comes amazing opportunity, it'd be fair to say. Um, so and, and, and just the last point again, I just want to hit on the fact that either way, whether we're talking about the changing economics of renewables completely unrelated to climate change, or if we're talking about the drivers of policy, the environmental or the moral imperative, or the market shift or the capital shift, or managing the actual effects of climate change, either way, we actually need to be, to be seriously adapting to a very changed operating environment to the one we've had for the last 200 years in terms of the economics of energy. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you to our speakers, Tony, Emma and John, for marvellous presentations. And that concludes tonight's Sydney Ideas talk, but keep an eye out for future Sydney Ideas talks, and thank you very much, and have a good night. <laughs>